my wife and I had been trying to have a child for a couple of years. I found out I was going to Afghanistan the same week that I, we found out we were pregnant. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, oh, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today for Life on the Line, I spoke with Mick Sasser, currently serving in the Australian Army. We spoke about Mick's career, deployments, reforms he's made in the Army, and the story of his ancestors, who fought on opposing sides in the two world wars. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm speaking today with Mick Sasser. Mick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here, Alex. Mick, where did you grow up? Actually, I was born in Melbourne, but spent my early childhood uh, both in Melbourne and overseas. My father was posted uh, around the world, and I joined him and the family on uh, on those living in various locations, principally in Germany, but other places as well, such as North America, Canada. He was posted in Poland and around other parts of the world. Got to a point where my father was posted to India, and at some point the schooling ceased there and the decision was made whether to go to um, boarding school either in Australia or in Germany. My father's German, my mother's Australian and then we went to Australia and uh, had a look at some of the boarding schools here particularly in Melbourne which is where my mother's family is from and it was a no-brainer decision so uh, the open playing fields, uh, the environment in Melbourne so yeah I started boarding school relatively young about uh, 13 in Melbourne and that's where I completed my schooling. Did you speak German? Yeah, no, I did speak German. I still do speak German, so I'm fluent in German. Sprachen Sie Deutsch, yeah? Yeah, fließend. Do you have any military history further up the family tree, or are you the first? No, I actually, as I've learnt over a number of years, I come from a line of uh, soldiers on both my mother's and my father's side. It is entirely conceivable that I had relations on both sides of both world wars. Certainly in my mother's family, uh, we have relatives of hers and therefore of mine who were at Gallipoli and on the Western Front in the First World War. I know that my uh, grandfather was in New Guinea in the Second World War. In terms of my father's family, I'm not too sure what his grandfather uh, did or where he was. I know that my paternal grandfather was in the German army and uh, he was captured and was a prisoner of war, came home very late uh, after the conclusion of the Second World War. and my paternal grandmother was faced with the prospect of raising four boys and moving them and I think they were able to stay one tactical bound ahead of the Russian army as it advanced into Germany at the end of the Second World War and my father and his three brothers ended up spending a l the latter half of the war in a orphanage in Western Germany. Thank goodness they managed to make it over that east-west divide. Your grandfather, was he kept in a British POW camp or...? No, my uh, paternal grandfather was captured at Stalingrad. Wow. So he was in Russia 
I think he got home about 53 or 54. At least he made it home. Mm, one of very few. Did you grow up hearing many stories from your father's side of the family or more your mother's? A combination of both, I think. I was aware that I had on my mother's side a military history and a military background. I think I've always had a little bit of an interest in the military, certainly as a young boy and growing up, and, and that may be just normal. And certainly in my generation, I think it was that one always sort of either played soldiers or thought about soldiering. It's when I actually explored the factual history of my family, both my maternal and paternal history, that I became a little bit more interested. And certainly I remember there were snippets of conversation with my paternal grandfather where he'd just say things. A couple of things I remember, we were quite close. I'm, I think I was probably his favourite grandchild. And we used to sort of walk together. He hated the rain. He hated the cold. And he didn't talk much about the war. But he did tell me little things that uh, I should be careful of doing, like protecting the weapons in the cold and all those sorts of things. And as I now understand it, he obviously had a fair degree of PTSD, and that's explainable, but it was never treated. And keeping in mind the fact that certainly I know that in Germany, even whether Western Germany and now Germany, for a long period of time, there was no conversation about the war. And it's important, I think, to understand, and I've really only sort of come to grips with this recently, is that you know, my father doesn't talk about it much, nor do his brothers, uh, and my grandfather was never able really to talk about it. And there's a whole generation that were never able to tell their story. And that's not in any way excusing what may or may not have occurred, but the fact that these people's individuals and humans were never able to tell their story is a real gap and a real blight really on the community. I think now there's an increasing sort of understanding of what that generation went through. And I know that my paternal grandmother grew up in the First World War. So she comes from a generation, which is now deceased, but came from a generation that just had hardship after hardship. Uh, so she was a pretty tough woman. And on my mother's side, I slowly came to understand and appreciate their stories, particularly my maternal great-grandfather, uh, the Gallipoli veteran, the Western Front veteran. Not much was said. Um, it was just acknowledged. Uh, there was not a great celebration about it. It was no great, deep, meaningful conversations about it. And I know that my grandfather, uh, now also deceased, never spoke really about his wartime experiences. Uh, he used to get together with his friends. And it was only not that long ago that I found you know, a little suitcase that he had uh, in his cupboard and in that suitcase, it was like an old schoolboy's sort of case. And you open it up and in there are very old photos. There is a Japanese flag with some bloodstains on it. And that was obviously his go-to memory box. And no one had really sort of pulled it apart. It wasn't as though it was a family show and tell item or anything. And so you come to unpack their stories and you realise that they have now all died and they've never had a chance to tell their stories. And I find that really sad. So I suppose when I come back to my service, I sort of try and make sure that people are able to not only serve to the best of their ability, but also are able to tell their stories. And I think that's a very important part of service life. I think it's an incredibly important part of our heritage to have the official history and have the documented, but actually to hear the individuals that make up the chorus of history and the few World War II veterans, for example, I've had the privilege of meeting and speaking with. The, most of them have not spoken until they've reached their 
80s or 90s outside their family and then they've realized there's a need to speak that's bigger than them and their own desires. So those who have not spoken before have decided, actually, I need to do this. It's got a greater importance. And to hear that uh, your grandparents didn't necessarily have the opportunity to properly pass on their experiences is sad. And while it's greatly unfortunate, it's at least impacted on you and given you a drive. And I think that's been important going forward that you can at least take that lesson and that legacy to change that so it's not a repeating cycle but going forward we have a new outlook on it so you grow up around the world you're hearing these stories starting to trickle down the family tree and you have a natural young boy's interest in soldiering and war what first inspired you to join the military and why the army i had wanted to join the army from school i know in my last couple of years i was quite keen on that and it was, I was sort of looking at potentially going to Portsea as it was in the last couple of years before it closed. And rather than Royal Military College Duntroon, only because it was reasonably closer. But uh, I was persuaded by a whole bunch of um, fathers at uh, Xavier College to pursue uh, another career. And uh, they were quite keen that I do something in the law or commerce field. Not that I'm a brilliant student, but I seem to have not that much problem in achieving the requisite marks. So anyway, the results came out uh, from my year 12. Uh, I was, and I had put uh, economics and law down at Monash University as my first preference, having been persuaded by priests, as you do at that age, I suppose. And I got into uh, law and economics at Monash. So I did that. But soldiering was never far away from what I wanted to do. So it wasn't long after that that I decided to enlist, and uh, I did. And my enlistment date is 14 February 1989. Uh, I refer to it as a bad year for love. So joining the Army on Valentine's Day is, is not that common an occurrence. You know, it's been variously described as my first love, um, but it's not my only love. And I'm now obviously happily married with a, a 10-year-old son, so um, it wasn't all lost. Which do you celebrate more on Valentine's Day? Oh, no, I am. Yeah, it's not my enlistment date, I can tell you that. <laughs> After your training is completed, what was your first posting? My first posting was actually down at uh, Two Commando Company, and I was due to... Uh, my selection course for uh, beret qualification and I remember that I did not complete the, I think it was back then, it was 30 kilometer route march uh, at the end of a two week period and I remember pulling off my boots and pouring out blood and at that point I decided maybe that's not where I need to be. So I sought different employment within the army and as it turns out I eventually ended up at 5th 7th Battalion as it then was, which is the Mechanised Infantry Battalion based in Darwin. But since split, so we now got two Mechanised Battalions, one in Darwin, 5th Battalion and one in Adelaide, which is the 7th Battalion. Actually was a company commander in then uh, 5th, 7th Battalion and I was the company commander who was tasked to raise the first reserve company for warlike deployment going to Timor-Leste in 2002 and that was a journey in force generation for Army. So Army had not deployed a collective capability of reservists since World War II. And all credit, I think, to both the government and the army leadership at the time that the decision was made to do that. And I think it went much against 
what the common sort of regular army thinking was in relation to that. But my personal view of it is if we hadn't have gone through that process, we probably wouldn't be as far down the track on the total force model and the force generation cycle that includes the Army Reserve now because that was groundbreaking. We had no methodology by which to select these people. We had no methodology by which to identify their requisite skill sets. And there was a whole, the army sort of swung in behind in terms of trying to get this up and running. So I remember we were days uh, on the range at Pakapanyal. We did almost a combat training center type selection. And there was the whole administrative process because the reserve at that point was not administered to the standard or either in the fashion that the regular army was. So having to review everyone's career files, their personal files, their medical files, and make sure that they were qualified. Because the benchmark was, you know, you had to be at ARA standard. That didn't mean you had to have ARA experience, but you had to have an ARA standard to be part of Alpha Company and then to deploy. So once the company was assembled, there were, I remember there was a farewell parade at Simpson Barracks in Watsonia. I think the nicest part of that was I remember um, I marched on the company and uh, they were obviously in their camouflage uniforms and with their sort of little uh, camouflage hats on. And then there was a totally novel drill movement, which was to remove hat and put the regimental beret on. Interestingly enough, we got it done within the parade context and they all did it as a drill movement. So all the hats went off at the same time, all the hats went on, the berets went on at the same time. And uh, so there's 90 berets then getting put on. I'm trying to picture a change of headdress on parade and how you would have come up with the timings to do that. That's quite a funny image. Oh, it was working hard with the RSM, uh, regimental sergeant major, a little bit of my background, and I had a very good uh, company sergeant major and a good uh, regular army 2IC. So between us, we sorted it out. But I don't think it appears in the drill manual anymore. After that, we went up to Darwin. And then as part of the battalion's pre-deployment training, we participated in all those serials. So I remember taking the company to a number of training venues. So out um, outside Darwin for company level training and platoon level training, uh, some more range work, and um, also uh, did uh, a rotation through jungle training wing at Tully, which is interesting because uh, a fair few of those reservists have never been through Tully before. And if you haven't been through Tully before, uh, I'm Apologies to your audience, you will have no idea what it's like. So Tully will rain if the rest of Australia is dry. Tully will rain when it's raining in the rest of Australia. Tully is jungle and everything that crawls and moves and will nibble you, can bite you, will occur at Tully. So it's deliberately designed to be uncomfortable. And being able to adapt in that environment is really what Tully is all about. So uh, that was an interesting rotation and there was a lot learnt. And that's where we really tested the junior leaders in the company. And I think from memory, I might have actually dismissed one or two and then promoted a couple of others because I needed to be confident that at every level in the company, I had the right people who could do the job that they were tasked to do. And if that was a junior leadership role, then they need to be able to lead. And I didn't need to have someone, particularly in Timor, where they were going to likely be out on a small task for a period of time where that leader was not able to lead. So I had to have confidence in that leadership at all levels. So we developed that. And what I, the message I kept sort of sending, because obviously this 
task had a high level of strategic interest and, some, and a high degree of political interest. So, but the message I kept saying is that we are able, as an organisation, Army, we should be able to and we can draw on a vast array of the talent that is inherent in the Australian population. And I think the Alpha Company piece demonstrates the fact that you can, given time and resources and priority, you can take a collection of people who, yeah, admittedly, they were already in the army and they had had some training, but you can build them into a unit and you can build them into an effective unit that can execute the mission it's given, which is what Alpha Company did. But what's brilliant about Alpha Company is the fact that there was a whole bunch of civilian skill sets brought into the play that you wouldn't normally get within a regular army rifle company. And to just give you an example, I remember I had a platoon out on patrol in uh, TMLS and I was in the command post as the company commander and I got a radio call in that there was a burst pipe in a village and it was causing some severe flooding. And now normally if you were you know, running an operation with a regular company, you just sort of get that report in, some details, and we probably need some engineers or whatever to go and fix it. As it turns out, that section actually had a qualified plumber in it. So I remember to this day, the situation report I got was almost a quote for repairs. So it was quite specific in terms of what was required, how much time it would take, and uh, what the indicative cost might be. And whilst that's a little bit humorous, it does actually indicate that reservists in particular are able to bring a whole bunch of external skill sets and backgrounds into a significant contribution to whatever the capability output required is at the time. Then a bit down the track, you find yourself posted to land headquarters and with a promotion. Uh, yes, no, I did. So um, I, I went to staff college and uh, then was posted or promoted out of staff college and uh, to a lieutenant colonel and then was given what I thought was the unenviable task of being the staff officer grade one personnel at land headquarters. In and of itself, quite a nice uh, appointment and a lovely title. What I didn't appreciate was the fact that the staff officer grade one personnel also, at that time, also included the incident management function. Everyone's favourite. That was everyone's favourite. So I thought that, uh, you know, I would enjoy and I did enjoy the personnel planning and the personnel policy aspect of it and I had a really great team to do that. It was the incident management piece, well, I also had some people working for me in that space, that was the part of my job that uh, kept me awake a long time, over many nights. And I remember that during my appointment, we had the Kofco incident in Iraq and... One of the things that we realised at that time was that Army probably did not really have a mature notification process. Following from that, not necessarily triggered by that, but following from that was in a holistic review of how we do notifications. So we now have a notification officer training regime and we have a roster and people understand what their potential obligations are. And then you superimpose that obviously with the padres, etc. It is probably the saddest duty you need to undertake but it's something that needs to be done with a high degree of sensitivity. I think that's an interesting behind the scenes for people because after the tragic death of Private Covco, that was sort of a perfect storm of little accidents or mistakes that created headline after headline and it was uh, exacerbating for the family, I imagine. But then speaking with other veterans after that who've been on notification parties or people who have received them, it's very slick, well-oiled machine because you have to handle that with great care. So to see that evolution even in this century is quite impressive. 
One of the other things you do in that role is the delivery of the Army's first gap year program. Uh, yes. I remember I was sitting in a conference room in Canberra and it was announced that Army would participate in a gap year program, and as I recall, a government initiative. The immediate response is, right, so what do we do in a gap program? And what was interesting at the time was that each of the services brought a different perspective on how they were going to meet this government direction to provide a gap year. And it was interesting because, and I will be potentially slightly disrespectful, the Air Force view at that time, and I'm sure it has matured since, was they would simply just move them around and give them an exposure to Air Force in the broad. Navy's view, as I recall, and again, that's obviously matured since then, was to sort of take them to a couple of bases, put them on a ship and whatever the case might be. Not necessarily life at sea, but a little bit of smelling the salt water, I suppose. Army took a very different track, and that was, well, hang on, we actually have the potential that we can actually recruit some of these people, notwithstanding the fact that they had the ability to walk away at the end of their gap year. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to invest in training, and we're going to run them through recruit training, we're going to run them through initial employment training, and then we can see at the end either they want to stay on because then Army was under strength at the time, so it was seen as a potentially good opportunity to uh, recruit people and almost somewhat pejoratively a try-before-you-buy sort of construct. And what that implied, though, was that we would have to make sure that their experience was totally positive because we were keen to retain as many of them as possible at the end of their gap year. So you had to move the whole organisation, Land Command, which, which led, uh, back then it was Land Command, led that sort of push was about, well, hang on, we have to change the culture and we have to change our training paradigm a little bit because what we've got now is we've got people coming through a training pipeline who are not, haven't signed up for four years, haven't, are not going to make a lifelong career in the Army. They're going to actually get to 12-month track, 11-month track, and then they're going to say, thanks, but see you later, or where do I sign on? I want to keep going. Slight other complication was you therefore had to have a mechanism whereby you could transition people out of the gap year, transition people from gap year into the regular Army, subset of that was some of them would transition from gap year into the reserve and that was a bonus because that was a capability enhancement for the reserve because they were getting a fully trained soldier so they didn't have to train someone on a part-time basis was the reserve able to provide an army workplace that met the expectations of the gap year person so there you had that piece of the puzzle if you will as well and then you uh, had to sort of also allow for the fact that hang on so we've done the gap year piece and you know what? We actually don't need any more of X. What we need is Y. And so if you sign on, you're going to Y. So again, you had to have an expectations conversation with the individual who wanted to do X and didn't want to do anything else but X. And we needed them in Y because that's where our capability shortfalls were. So it's a combination of changing process, changing culture, changing expectations, and making sure that we had a reasonably slick process whereby people would sign on, do their gap year and then aspirationally we'd retain the most of them in the army either in the full-time army the regular army or in the reserve you move on from headquarters in 2007 and find yourself on the other side of the world what's your deployment in operation slipper involve well there's a precursor little story to that Please. so um i was 
I knew that I was uh, in the window for a deployment to Afghanistan and my wife and I had been trying to have a child for a couple of years. I found out I was going to Afghanistan the same week that I, we found out we were pregnant. So that was not a pretty ta dinner table conversation. So we then had to sort of plan how we were going to do it. And we were in Sydney at the time and we had no family in Sydney. My wife is from Melbourne, so her family and support base is in Melbourne. So that's where we first developed the construct of having the fly-in grandmother. And she's great, uh, my mother-in-law. Uh, and she is, you know, pack bag will travel, which is great, but she hadn't had to do that previously. And uh, so we had to make arrangements for uh, my mother-in-law to be in Sydney and sort of family to visit as well to support my wife through that period. So I deployed to Afghanistan in, um, I think it might have been September from memory, in 2007. But anyway, so we, uh, my wife was, I think, uh, four months pregnant at the time. The other complicating factor in terms of synchronisation here was the fact that we learnt before I deployed that our son, Nicholas, was due to be born on New Year's Eve of 2007. And obviously that was halfway through my proposed deployment. So before I deployed, I made arrangements with where I was going to be deployed in Afghanistan that I would get my relief out of country travel over the time period that Nicholas was going to be born. So I'd be home for the birth. And that was all locked in. It was all agreed. So reluctantly, my wife bid me farewell as I flew out to the Middle East and then Afghanistan. It was a challenging deployment. Back then, we used to have the support base in Kuwait and... Uh, I remember coming out of Afghanistan and hitting the support base and ringing my wife and I rang her and this was on I think on the 22nd of December and I said how are you doing and she said you really want to know and I said yeah of course and she said my waters are broken and I'm thinking right so I'm here in Kuwait and I'm not a doctor but I'm sensing I don't have much time to get home. The whole Australian support base there at Kuwait spun themselves up to see how quickly I could get back home because I was going to be on the normal sustainment flight, which was in a couple of days' time. And uh, to their great credit, they did everything possible and I was flying Arctic routes and whatever it might be to get home. And it turned out the sustainment flight was the quickest option. So I ended up getting home, flew into Sydney, I recall, and uh, my wife and my mother-in-law met me at the airport. My wife looked great. And I thought, okay, so the first thing I remember saying to her is, so where's the baby? And so I looked down and then she's still pregnant. So she'd held on. And uh, this is 20, this is Christmas Eve. And so we went straight in the hospital and Nicholas was born 35 minutes past midnight on Christmas Day. Wow. So just in time, I got home. Beautiful, bouncing boy, healthy as anything. The hardest part? was that I then had to go back to Afghanistan after that. That must be... We have, to, we have to contact Guinness Book of World Records for the longest journey travel between waters breaking to the birth to reach the hospital in time. That is amazing. Well, and I, you know, I don't want to make it too public, but I think my wife acted contrary to doctor's orders in terms of waiting. But it was all good in the end, which is great. And... The, as I said, the hardest part was then saying goodbye to my wife and my son and then going back to Afghanistan. Uh, and particularly, I remember f we were flying back in because you flew back then, you flew in Kandahar and Kabul, and that was the time that they were firing at the C-130s as they were doing the approaches, etc. So sitting up front and seeing the green tracer coming towards the plane and knowing that, you know, it's actually not all that safe and I'm not in the rear with the gear, but... Uh, 
and you are a new father. There's a whole different thought pattern that goes through your mind. Let's talk about your time in Afghanistan, and I want to hear experiences before and after the birth of Nicholas and to sort of see how that mindset affects your time on the ground and your experience there. So can you talk me through Afghanistan with that window point in mind? Probably just a little bit of context if I can. So my appointment in uh, Afghanistan was I went in to be, Australia at that time had a Lieutenant Colonel rank position as a plans team leader at uh, Headquarters International Security Assistance Force in Kabul. So that was a US four-star led, US, NATO uh, and other nations involved and that's where Australia fitted in. So we had a number of embedded officers in that headquarters in Kabul. So I went in as the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rank Lance team leader. But about four weeks after I was there, obviously before Nicholas was born, the Brits failed to fill their full colonel rank position in the plans division. And the US three-star general, who was the chief of operations and plans, you know, asked me whether I wanted to step in and do that job. So I went from plans team leader to deputy chief policy and plans. And I was working to a chief of policy and plans who at that time was a French brigadier. And he was succeeded subsequently by a Spanish brigadier. Neither of those spoke very good English. Most of them focused on their national stuff, and neither of them could spell plans, let alone do plans. So most of the functionality defaulted to me, and obviously my predecessors who'd worked in that previous roles, whether they were Brits or Norwegians. But so, yeah, for the majority of my deployment, I was the Deputy Chief Policy and Plans for the National Security Assistance Force based in Kabul. The beauty of that job was that I was able to do a fair bit of travelling because I had to go around, so I saw pretty much all of Afghanistan and that provided some challenges along the way. You used to do the battle runs up to Bagram and sort of dodge the IEDs and occasionally get caught and that's all good. Went out to Herat in Western Afghanistan. I have a photo of myself standing outside the FOB at Herat in minus 35 degrees and it's a bit of a lunar landscape when it snows and freezes over there in Herat and then going down the south down to Kandahar and the likes and traveling to the east and to the north. So Masar is Sharif and I mean, the best part about that was that's where all the Germans and Scandinavians were based at the time. So that was happy days. So you could go into the dining facility, have your bratwurst and sauerkraut, which is all good. But they had the best technical store on base there. So if you wanted anything technical, because the Nordic folk and the Germans are all big on the technical pieces. So if you needed a replacement for anything, that was the place you went to because you could source it there. And that doesn't minimise the threats and the dangers that were inherent at the time. That was a pretty lively place. And so during my deployment, we, Australia actually suffered probably the majority of its uh, casualties in Afghanistan over that sort of 2000, 2007, 2008 period. It seemed to be almost successive memorial services for killed Australians, uh, which is something that stays with you forever. But so, so in sort of pre-Nicholas time, uh, I was really into it uh, and really enjoyed it and did what I needed to do, uh, dodging this and dodging that, and whether that's generals on the one hand or um, IDs on the other. And then post-Nicholas, I did the same thing. And then what I realised was that uh, I carried a photo, obviously, of Nicholas around with me. And what's interesting was I carried a photo of Nicholas in utero, you know, some one of the, the shots that you know, Gabbard's my wife, had sent me. So I carried that with me. And then post-birth, obviously, carried a photo of Nicholas as a baby with me. So, uh, And I still carry a photo of Gab and uh, Nicholas wherever I go. But I don't think it sort of 
was predominant in my mindset or the way I approached the job, but I was conscious of the fact that I had a greater obligation back at home, not just to my wife, but now to my son as well. So that was sort of conscious there, but I've often been accused of being able to effectively compartmentalise, and probably that was a survival mechanism at the time. And then you find yourself back in Timor-Leste in 2012. Yes. So I have the distinction, dubious or otherwise, of being the last JTF commander, so Joint Task Force commander in Timor-Leste. For those that may not understand it, the very first commander was General Cosgrove, and the very last commander was uh, good old Lieutenant Colonel Sasser. So uh, that's sort of the bookends of our operational engagement, as opposed to our training advisory engagement, which still continues, but our operational engagement in uh, Timor-Leste. So I went in there in August, September 2012, and the curious and I suppose serendipitous part of this was that my battalion, because I was a CO of 4-3 at the time, was uh, tasked with training and certifying the reservists who were going to go and form part of the extraction, which was the task for that rotation. So it was a different deployment. It wasn't just a forced rotation piece as such. The Defence Force, and I use that term advisedly, had decided that there would be a novel way to conclude operations in East Timor. And the novel way was that we would actually put in a rotating force that would self-extract and everything else from the country to conclude the peace support mission. Previously, and the the paradigm uh, that we've had since, places like Afghanistan and Iraq, was that you put in a force extraction team. And it would do all the governance, the accounting, making sure it's all squared away and then would extract both personnel and equipment from the relevant theatre. That's sort of the standard model. Now they decided to break new ground with this one. So the complicating factor here was that you had a number of, uh, you had a greater proportion of regular army as part of this rotation and they were principally about the governance and logistics and the administrative aspects to close down the theatre, superimposed with a security force which was principally reservists. So there actually is no textbook for how you force generate, train and certify that sort of force because it's a composite force. We've never done it before. So I had to go through that process. Anyway, I did a final reconnaissance into Timor-Leste as the commanding officer of the, of the force generation, force preparation, force generation organisation and turned out that I was somewhat concerned at the level of planning and preparation in Timor-Leste. So I came back and, um, you know, I back briefed that and in terms of how what, what we had to do to prepare when we went in there. And then the next thing I know is that um, the current commander in there at the time, and I think this might have been in May or something or June, the current commander there had um, been selected to be the next defence attaché in Delhi and therefore had to leave early to come and do whatever training and preparation was required in Australia. So they needed someone to go in early to take over as the Joint Task Force Commander. And someone in Canberra had a Damascene moment that, hey, hang on, we've got a Lieutenant Colonel who's actually force generation, force certifying this organisation. Why don't we put that person in and then they can do the job that they were training their force to do? Anyway, it came to fruition that was the case, and so I went in and uh, I basically received in the force that I had trained. So um, that doesn't really happen that often. And uh, we then went about the task of continuing the peace support mission, 
which was extended because the planned finish time for that uh, was, I think, in about September. We didn't finish that formally because it required UN uh, Security Council resolutions and diplomatic arrangements and agreements. So they weren't all in place until I think it was late November, early December. And the important piece of that is that's actually the trigger to then commence the retrograde operations to start moving people back. You can't move people back whilst you're still committed uh, under UN auspices for a peace support mission. So you're having to be somewhat bipolar in the way that you engage in this operation. So my engagements with Timor-Leste government officials um, and the UN Security Council did a final visit to theatre, etc. was about, yeah, I'm continuing the mission, but I'm also in the background preparing to move back. We worked pretty hard in the first couple of weeks I was there. We had to redo the planning for the withdrawal. Um, and it wasn't really a withdrawal, it was sort of the extraction piece. And that planning wasn't robust, frankly. We redid it uh, and then cut a new plan, which was approved back in Australia. And then, as it turns out, we went to do it. And so by the end of March, we had completed the repatriation of all equipment, hand, formal handback of all the bases we'd occupied, and the return of all personnel, both to New Zealand and to Australia. And I was somewhat self-indulgent in the sense that I was the last person to step on the plane uh, of the uh, last small group that was left there. So It's rather historic. And that's also been a motif of your career, having to break new ground and be given a problem and told, no, no, fine, make a brand new way to do this. Go. But that's the way we train our army officers, Alex. I see. What was Timor like from your point of view 10 years on from your first deployment there? It was interesting. It had there had been changes, and then there had been no changes. And I, mean, I had this conversation with other people in other places about it's a, it's somewhat of an elegant bookend to you know my first experience as a company commander, where we were on operations and and stuff did happen. And being a joint task force commander to essentially close down our involvement in that theatre and the. Timor-Leste individuals, the government individuals, for example, hadn't changed. Some of their titles and appointments and positions had changed, but I had dealt with some of them previously. Uh, There were parts of Dili that had been completely rebuilt and they were brand new office structures. I think a lot of them had been built by the Chinese, but they were bereft of furniture, which is interesting. So you'd walk into a very attractive looking building, government building, and then you'd find there'd be one couch and a chair and a sort of a desk type of thing. So they hadn't completed the refurbishment, if you will. But that would be on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you'd still see young children bathing in the drains. And you sort of, you look left, look right, and it's two different parts of Timor-Leste, which was interesting in itself. And when you went outside of Dili, little had changed. You know, they still had the, the bad roads and the villages were still somewhat isolated. Frankly, you know, a lot of the government effort and focus was in and around Dili, and I understand that. And my sense is that the dynamic which I had experienced as a company commander, whereby there was sort of that east-west within Timor-Leste, that east-west sort of divide, had shifted a little bit and it was now probably more of a north-south divide, whereas the north of Timor-Leste was getting a lot more of the attention and focus, particularly Dili and, and moving out. And the south, which actually, interestingly enough, was where most of the resource wealth was concentrated, was not getting much attention at all. And there are some geographical challenges to that and there are some infrastructure challenges to that, but I think that divide was starting to appear. Let's jump ahead again. You find yourself in South Korea. Could you tell us what you were doing there? 
When I was came back from uh, Timor-Leste in 2013, I was posted to Headquarters Joint Operations Command and I was uh, posted as the uh, Lieutenant Colonel in charge of options planning, so future planning. But part of my remit was actually Northeast Asia and clearly within that remit is then our national engagement in the Korean Peninsula. And there is a major exercise done each year, which is a theatre-level exercise, which is essentially the defence of the Korean Peninsula. Now, there is a four-star US general that is in charge uh, of uh, the US and the United Nations contributions. And so that contribution is exercised in conjunction with the Republic of Korea and clearly its joint chiefs and its services combined together and it is the largest computer assisted exercise in the world and it's quite a challenge and I never appreciated the truism uh, because I remember one of my early mentors said to me there are three things you don't talk about one of those is high intensity conflict in Northeast Asia but when you actually go through a wargaming scenario on the Korean Peninsula the amount of personnel and the amount of capabilities that are concentrated into an area that is probably about the size of Victoria is mind-blowing so that's a real treat if you will as a planner uh, and, a, and an officer to be able to participate in that exercise and actually I've been a number of times, so I've now done four of those. Each August is when they occur. They happen to coincide with something explosive out of North Korea, which is always interesting. So I was there uh, just this August again for the exercise and I can now tick off on my bucket list having been in under the flight path of a ballistic missile and I don't want to do that again. But And then three years after that deployment, you're back in the Middle East. So I got uh, tasked to go over to what was then was had since since my last time there had been established which is our joint task force headquarters in um, the United Arab Emirates and uh, so we're on, a, on an air base there and that's where we've now established our command and control node for the Middle East and my role there was to step in or come in and be the uh, plans leader that essentially is ADF planning so Australian Defence Force planning for our operations in the Middle East, um, based out of that headquarters. So working to an Australian two-star, uh, it was an Air Force uh, two-star at the time. And it's a quite interesting role because it is a role that probably has evolved. So I think, it, frankly, it evolved under my time. And what you are principally responsible for is, and it's not a natural sort of congruence, all the visits to the Middle East, and there are a lot of them, so I think uh, my team, which comprised myself and two others, planned in excess of 100, 110 visits of significance to, uh, to the Middle East in my 10 months there. So, uh, so not only are you responsible for uh, the sort of high-profile visits, and that's everyone from uh, the Chief of Defence Force, the Defence Minister and, and others and, and important visitors, and they all require a fair bit of preparation and work. You're also responsible, and I'm also responsible for um, force flow, so that's our rotating contingents, so getting them in, getting them prepared, and then moving them on to their locations and also responsible for contingency planning and uh, responses that the Australian Defence Force may take in response to extremist circumstances. And what is your current role, Mick? I'm currently the Chief of Staff and the Deputy Commander of Army's Defence Command Support Training Centre and that's based at Simpson Barracks at Watsonia. So that training centre is essentially a defence capability because it is responsible for the delivery of training 
both Army, Navy and Air Force in the signals, skill sets, in service police, intelligence and music. A slight disparate sort of collection of capabilities, but they're grouped together as command support capabilities and enablers. So each of those schools, and, and they are spread across the eastern seaboard, so from Melbourne all the way up to Canungra. And the training centre then is, is all of those schools grouped up with the headquarter component at Simpson Barracks. So I am the chief of staff for the training centre and, and the deputy commander of the training centre. Well, Mick, it's quite a career. Thank you for your many years of service and for your time today. That's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Mick Sasser, recorded in December 2017. Let us know what you thought of the episode by emailing us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also like us on social media, Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.